otherwise on SAFM. Professor Mark Soms is UCT's Professor for Neuropsychology. Professor, welcome and thank you for your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I had to uh, think so far, so far back because I'm thinking, am I signing up for a biology lesson again today? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, some, some of the terms I, I'd forgotten, but when I read uh, what you say about our brains being different, I'm hoping we can maybe answer the question of what men want or what women want. Well, um, I, I suppose we know some things about um, the differences between male and female brains and some of the implications for that, but I really must emphasize there's a great deal that we don't know, so we can't answer everything from the neuroscience point of view. Well, let's start at the beginning. Where, where does the circuit begin from, I suppose, a mom's eggs and dad's sperm? Uh, is, is that where it begins to start giving us some answers or understanding? Yes, it does necessarily begin at conception um, because that's when your chromosomes are determined. You know, the, the XX versus XY pair, which, which dictates whether you're male or female, that happens at conception. Okay. And everything else flows from that because it's from the Y chromosome, the, the, the male chromosome, that um, it... Uh, I don't know if people generally realize this, but the, the, the basic design of the human body is female. Uh -huh. And um, if you have an XY chromosome, then it produces <clears throat> um, chemicals in utero uh, you know, in, uh, that, that affect the fetus, uh, which masculinizes the fetus. So it would, if left to its own devices, it would become a girl. But then some uh, a chain of events that arises from that Y chromosome turns the fetus into a male. Is, is that a natural process or can it be coerced? It's a natural process, um, but uh, the, let me quickly explain what the cascade of events is because although it is a natural process, it's not, it's not something that happens uh, uh, to the same degree in everyone. The thing that the Y chromosome uh, does, there's a gene sequence on it which produces a chemical called TDF, testes determining factor. Mm -hmm. And uh, that chemical, um, the, remember all along uh, in everything I'm saying, the, the, the fetus would grow into a female baby. Mm -hmm. um, so the gonads, which was the part of the fetus's anatomy that would become ovaries uh, if left to the normal course of events. Yes. TDF turns those gonads into testicles. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this is also something that I think many people might be surprised to hear, but that is the only genetically determined difference between males and females. Everything else um, follows from that. So it's a very, very tiny thing. The, the male fetus grows testicles rather than ovaries, and uh, then the testicles produce testosterone, a hormone, male-specific hormone. And the, the, this comes in two great waves. Um, the, the first wave, which is around the beginning of the second trimester, masculinizes the body. Um, and then, but the masculinization of the body by testosterone, the mother's body has to contribute a chemical too. So the, the mother produces a chemical called 5-alpha reductase. That gets, that gets um, combined with the testosterone to produce another chemical called dihydrotestosterone. And that's what masculinizes the body. Now, if the mother produces more or less of the enzyme that I mentioned, that will affect how much um, the body is masculinized. Likewise, it depends how much testosterone the, the fetal testicles produce. So although 
um, in, except in the rarest of cases, the body is masculinized in, in, you know, in every XY uh, case. Uh, nevertheless, it happens by degrees. Mm-hmm. That, that's why they say there's a female in all of us. Huh? There really is. The female side in, in, in men and women. Huh? It just yeah. depends. The degrees, again, differ. But, but Professor, I want to know, well, why does the brain remain female, though, even after the testosterone has been produced? Um, it's because of the blood-brain barrier. There's a there's a, 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 a very strong barrier uh, preventing anything from getting into the brain because the brain is you know and needs to be protected. It's a highly it's, it's our most highly prized organ. It's sort of like the boss of the whole body. So the chemical that masculinizes the body doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. So the brain stays female, and it's uh, only some uh, almost three months later that again there's a surge of testosterone produced by the fetus's testicles this again has to be converted by the mother's body she now she now releases a chemical called aromatase and that again converts the testosterone into another hormone and that one can cross the blood-brain barrier and funnily enough that hormone is estrogen it's a female Ah, hormone ah. and uh, estrogen then masculinizes the brain the important point to um uh, uh, recognizing what I've told you is that because it's two separate processes, your body may be masculinized and your brain less so and vice mm-hmm. versa. Mm-hmm. So because you look like a beefy male doesn't mean that you've got a beefy male brain and vice versa. You might have a, a, a relatively feminine body but an entirely masculine brain because the, the, these chemicals released by the mum can be affected by all manner of things uh, including stress. It's very well demonstrated that stress prevents the mother from producing enough aromatase and that, that in turn inhibits the masculinization of the brain. Before we continue, I think somebody's interested in asking a question. Professor, please stay on the line. Harry in Port Elizabeth, hello. Yes, uh, good afternoon. I'll switch off my radio. Can you hear me clearly, Shadow? Yes, we can. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, it's very interesting, and I love the technical part, but I guess the thing that most people want to know is, is there any truth in the multitasking capability of the female? <laughs> um, I, I did once hear um, something quite technical. The two hemispheres of the brain are connected by a, uh, a cord called the corpus callosum, or I could be correct, incorrect, and apparently it's thicker in the case of the female in enabling her to switch tasks quicker than the male who's better at focusing on one task. Well, and that's the most important question. Now that you've, you've taken us there, we were going to get to the brain and its behavior um, yes. and, and, and the differences thereof. But I, I don't mind, Professor, do you think you can answer that? Sure. Um, uh, what the caller says is correct in part. And uh, the other part, uh, it's not that is incorrect. It's just that we don't really have evidence. So the part that he's correct about is that the corpus callosum, the, the the beam of fibers that connects the two hemispheres is larger in the female than in the male. And uh, what this obviously means is that there's more communication between the two hemispheres. Um, but we, there's no evidence to suggest that this correlates with a multitasking ability. Mm. What it does, there's strong evidence uh, that it correlates with something else, um, with in fact two things. And the one is that females on the average are 15% less competent spatially 
than males. And then I, 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 I must uh, uh, emphasize Ooh. that this is not a prejudice or a Ooh. wish or a, you know, it's, it's, a, <clears throat> it's a very well documented fact that on the average 15 percentage points uh, uh, lower is the female spatial ability than the male. And this correlates with the size of the corpus callosum. Uh, likewise, male linguistic ability is 15 percent lower than female linguistic ability. And that's from, from early childhood onward. And this again is very well documented in all cultures uh, and, and over many, many decades. Those two things correlate with the size of the corpus callosum. Mm-hmm. There are all sorts of theories as to why a bigger cor- corpus callosum should make you worse at space and better at language, but we really, those are just theories. We don't know why, and there's certainly no evidence that it correlates with multitasking ability. Harry, thank you for your call. Uh, th- thanks very much. Thanks, Sharon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Continue to listen. But now, now that we're talking about the, the brain and behavior, and we, we kind of jumped over there, I, I would like to know that where did the testosterone, does that make the men more aggressive? Is that the ingredient that gets men to be more aggressive than women, or is that just a fallacy? Well, it's, um, the, what, it's not a fallacy that men are more aggressive and more active than women. And again, perhaps we should rather use the words males and females than men and women, because okay. these things occur from childhood, from earliest childhood. Um, uh, And also, incidentally, what I'm saying now doesn't apply only to humans. It applies to all primates and and also to many many other mammals. So the male is more aggressive uh, and the male is more active than the female. This, um, this, however, we're not sure that it's a direct consequence of uh, the levels of testosterone. Testosterone is a, a, a really a complicated uh, kettle of fish that we haven't yet sorted it all out. But mm-hmm. it seems, if I, if I was to oversimplify what we do know, that testosterone has more to do with dominance behavior than aggression. Um, you know, it's not, it's not quite brute aggression so much as wanting to be on top, you know, wanting to be top dog. Um, um, feeling confident and and uh, and acting in a in a domineering sort of fashion. The, these things have more to do with testosterone than than simple aggression. But um, I have to say here that um, the dominance uh, and 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 um, domineering behaviour that I'm referring to is also correlated with another brain chemical, uh, not a hormone but a peptide called vasopressin, mm-hmm. and this is also much higher in males than it is in females. So it's some sort, and it's closely uh, chemically related to testosterone, but it's some sort of interplay between vasopressin and testosterone that makes males more dominant. And again, if I may, I, I want to emphasize that this doesn't mean that I believe that males should dominate. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, I, what I think it does mean is that we need to be aware that there is a greater tendency, a greater inclination, a natural instinctual inclination in males to want to dominate. And if we as a civilized society uh, don't believe that this is how things should be, then we need to take account of the fact that there is this natural predilection and uh, we, we need to, we need to um, uh, um, you know, factor that into our uh, liberty policies. Professor, so after this whole pre-wiring that happens and that you've explained, how much does so- socialization then affect the pre-wiring? It's, it's, uh, it affects it enormously. Um, the Perhaps the best way to illustrate it um, is with reference to something that we call the multiplier effect. So um, imagine that, um, as is the case, as I've told you, that the little female uh, neonate uh, or little infant uh, female is less aggressive Mm -hmm. and less hyperactive than the male. 
Um, this and, and, and conversely, the male, of course, more aggressive and more active. This is going to bring about different sorts of responses. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're constantly squirming about and, and demanding attention and biffing your, you know, your, the, the, the cat or your, or your sister or whatever the case may be, they're, they're going to respond to you in a defensive or aggressive sort of way. So the environment that you bring upon your head differs because of the, the, the genetic, uh, the hardwired difference that was there to start with. Mm-hmm. So that second, the, 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 um, uh, the, the different environmental response that you elicit, that in turn multiplies the, um, the, what might have been a very small difference to begin with. It makes for much bigger differences in the longer run. Mm-hmm. Now, Prof, do you know if we have any evidence of, of, uh, uh, of black and white and, and different racial uh, 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 profiles with regards to brain development or effect, or does it remain the same? No, exactly the same. So there's nothing that makes others less less uh, <laughs> less competent no not at all uh, the the only um, in, in terms of uh, gross anatomy of, of of brains of different ethnic groups uh, there's absolutely no difference there are some there are some ethnic groups that are smaller physically than others and of course the brain being part of the body would be smaller or bigger according to body size but the, this has been studied very thoroughly there's no size of brain is not a predictor at all of performance. Mm. So, and, and in fact, I, m- I might add, female brains in general are smaller than male brains for the obvious reason that females are smaller than males, mm-hmm. but there's no evidence that females are less intelligent than males or less competent cognitively in general. This doesn't correlate with brain size. The only other difference uh, in the brain um, across ethnic groups is that there, uh, some ethnic groups are more prone to some brain diseases than others, but that's, of course, a different topic. Mm. Mm. Let's talk about memory and how how we store memory and how um, uh, how it still affects us in the long run. So what I remember as a child, um, and, and sometimes we have to go through some kind of regression to to sort out issues that we grew up with. What w- w- is there an explanation for that? Well. Um now you asking a question which I could uh, uh, talk about for 40 hours. <laughs> there's, there's an enormous amount uh, that's known about memory, and memory is a much more complicated thing than most people realize. Okay. We have different, we have multiple memory systems in the brain. Um, for example, we have a memory system w- which we call the procedural learning system, which is which is designed to to um, learn automatic motor skills like riding a bicycle mm. or skiing or playing the piano or playing you know, a, 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 any kind of a, a, a physical sport. Uh, that's a completely different system from, say, um, the emotional memory system, which uh, um, conditions you in relation to emotionally relevant stimuli so that you might learn to fear people with beards because you know, mm-hmm. somebody with a beard when you were very little did something horrid to you. Mm-hmm. Now, both of those systems are completely unconscious. So you don't, they are incapable of remembering events. So they, they represent how to ride a bicycle without representing, remembering your lessons in riding a bicycle. It's just how to do it. It's mm-hmm. an automatic bodily movement. Likewise with the emotional memory system. You don't remember that nasty man with a beard who did that horrible thing to you, but you do just know, I don't like men with beards. Uh, then there are two other systems. There's one called the semantic memory system, which is for learning facts. You know, um, like uh, we had our first democratic elections in 1994, that's mm-hmm. a fact. 
which is different from a fourth memory system called the episodic system, which actually remembers events. So, you know, I remember in 1994 when I stood in that queue and cast my vote. Mm -hmm. Those are four completely separate, anatomically separated uh, memory systems which do very different things. Now, in terms of the question you asked, um, they come on stream at different times. And perhaps the most important um, uh, fact in, in that regard is that the episodic memory system, that is the part that's actually able to remember experiences and bring them back to mind, mm -hmm. that memory system isn't working at all in the first two years of your life. And it only gradually comes online after that. And that's why we don't remember, we can't remember. In fact, if anybody tells you they do remember anything that happened to them in the first two years of life, they are either lying uh, or, they're, or they're mistaking stories that have been told to them for memories. Um, and want to hold on to them because it makes sense to them. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's uh, what's most important in what I'm saying is that those early years of your life, you can't remember them, but you've learnt, you know, oodles of things during that time. So th there's enormous scope for you to be influenced by events that you can't even remember. And uh, this, is, uh, this is one of the reasons why we're such a mystery to ourselves. Is that that streaming that you say comes on at a later time where they cross roads, if you like? Yes. Uh, it's there's part of the brain called the hippocampus and that's the part that's necessary for laying down events memory for events and uh, the, the, that that comes on stream uh, as i said at the, in the second year at are, the end of the second year are we able to erase anything that we refuse to deal with or don't want in our brains um, well, it's funny that you should ask that because uh, up until a few years ago, I would have given a very different answer from what I'm going to give now, which is that the answer is yes, you can literally erase memories. Um, there's a pr process... Um, uh, people think that memories are like a sort of filing cabinet, you know, that you encode a memory and then it's stored in some sort of file and then you retrieve it from that file. But that isn't how it works. Uh, there's no storage cabinet in the head. It's an active process. It's, we call it consolidation. So, so when you learn something, it goes into this consolidation process. And then each time you learn something new, that affects what you learned before and it alters what you learned before. So the, the memory, the trace is a, is a living thing. It's constantly reorganizing itself in relation to later events. Now, the crux of the matter is that when you uh, consciously remember one of those things that have been consolidated, when you bring it back to mind, the, the network in the brain becomes labile again. That is, it becomes unstable again. The long-term memory trace gets brought to mind and then it becomes unstable. And uh, then it has to be reconsolidated. It has to be laid down again as a new trace. And that process, which we call reconsolidation, that period when the memory is brought to mind and is in a labile state before it gets stored away again, uh, that process can be interfered with chemically. You can literally prevent the memory from being reconsolidated and then it's gone. Now, how do we keep a healthy brain? Uh, same way as you keep a healthy body. We must never forget the brain doesn't float in a vat. <laughs> it's, it's connected to everything else in your body. And so everything that's good for general fitness is good for brain fitness. So my reading a thousand books a day won't necessarily keep, it's not like exercise for my brain. Oh, no, that's, uh, sorry, maybe I misunderstood your question. Certainly uh, there is evidence, uh, there's, there's good evidence that you can exercise your brain much ah. the same way as you can exercise a muscle. Mm -hmm. And you can, you know, let your brain go to flab. <laughs> 
um, <laughs> likewise. So no, no, don't don't misread me. Certainly, it's it's a it's a it's a good thing to keep your brain ship shape in that sense. I thought you meant the physical health of the oh, brain. Oh, okay, yeah. no, okay. No, Professor, I've enjoyed talking to you thoroughly, and hopefully, we talk again because I'm sure we have lots of other questions to ask you. But thank you for your insight. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You take care. Uh, that is Professor Mark Soms, UCT's professor of neuropsychology. Well. In fact, we'll find. I'll find out where where we got uh, interest in, in in this article from, and uh, and we'll put it up on 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 Twitter and give you more information. Interesting reading it makes, and just um, you know the basic differences. And I'm hoping that um, I was hoping that we'd understand each other better, which I, I hope we do, and and uh, keep that brain active and alive. But yeah, there's so many things I really. Would have liked to talk to him about when we come back though um and i'm sure you can go to the uct website and find work by uh professor mark soms it should be available online when we, we come back uh what's his name sting yeah ex-policeman sting singer um had you know made famous the word tantric uh when he he spoke about having a good tantric uh, lovemaking with his wife and all of us have been quite kind of curious about what tantric is well valentina leo is a tantric practitioner and she'll join us just hopefully to tell us more about that practice but i thought also um and she's part of a bigger group when they're talking about our cyclical feminine being and our sexual cycles is there a connection maybe and entering the wisdom of women's sexual cycles so i thought maybe tantric maybe something uh that would help our sexual health because on the fourth of this month it's World Sexual Health Day. So this is our way of, of honoring the day. Otherwise, on SAFM. Valentina Leo is a tantric practitioner and is my guest and on the line now. Valentina, hello. Welcome. Hi. Valentina, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you well. Can you hear me? I can hear you. How are you? Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for calling me. I feel very honored. Valentina, I hear, I hear a, a bit of an accent there? Yes, I'm Italian by birth. I've been spending the past 16 years in Cape Town. Welcome so to Cape Town. You can say I'm a new South African. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, Sting made us all aware of the word tantric. Uh, yes. a, a few years ago when he claimed to have the most enjoyable uh, lovemaking in his life. and But I'm not too sure if we all understand what it is. Uh, are you able to just give us some background? Yeah. Um, sorry, did you mention Sting? Was that the word you used? Yes. Yeah, uh, okay, okay. Well, um, Tantra is about many things in life, and uh, it's about being fully present in the moment right now with whatever it takes, uh, whatever it brings you. So... You know, it's, it's quite a long journey to um, strip oneself of a lot of idea that we've got on how life should be and should look and should feel and, and really sit in, in what's real in the moment. And um, that's basically Santa, to be totally present uh, in every moment. And so sexuality, obviously, it's, it's a good playground because... Uh, it reflects a lot of who we are. Um, it's every orgasm that we have is a mini version of ourselves, you know? It contains the essence of our being. So in a lot of tantric practices, we begin with sexuality and we work with sexuality to 
starts creating the greatest layer of illusion that we carry, you know. And, um, and, and the greatest illusion is that the sexual act only happens in the bedroom and uh, it's aimed at intercourse and when we reach peak orgasm, it's over and that's that. Mm. And that's, that's a very limited perception of what that could be. So, Valentine. Sorry, sorry, I, I, I sh- uh, sorry to interrupt there, but I, I just wanted to take us back a bit because that whole idea of being present, again, we hear a lot of, of, uh, of those ideas being given, you know, being present. But how do you know, uh, can you practice or can you train yourself to become present more often and more aware every time? Yes, yes, definitely, definitely you do. And, um, you know, it, it takes work, you know, because we all come with our life background. And what we tend, when something comes in life to us, we react to it according to our past experience. So it takes a lot of work into going back into how my life has been designed and undo and unwrap and really feel all the emotion that I put away in the moment because they were overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And um and I put away not to feel them. So uh, the work of a tantrika, it requires that we go back in all the spaces in our life where we haven't fully lived and live those emotions. And a lot of them are quite painful, to be honest, you know. Mm-hmm. It, takes, it takes willingness. And once you, you walk through the, uh, the emotion that are not real, that is a history, that is a memory, then that gives me the possibility to, in this moment, really see what comes for me. Mm. I mean, other, other simple practice to really be present is, is to concentrate to breath. Breath says a lot of our uh, current state, you know, and, and often in sexuality, for example, we tend to contract the breath or fast breathing or hold the breath, you know, and mm. um, there is a lot of fast feeding, uh, reaching the wave of orgasm. So the, the first tip that I can give is to, to check in, you know, am I, am I running away with my breath actually? Uh, do I want to be here? And if I don't want to be here, that maybe it's all that needs to be seen for me in this moment. And it means that I should stop mm. and move out of a dynamic and not really want fully to be in there, you know? Mm. And if I do want to be here, how can I be invite more of me into this moment with my partner? And one way is to really focus on my exhale and exhale fully, that I can fully empty myself out. Mm. That makes me really available to what's in the moment. Well, Even if, sorry. Uh, earlier I heard you, I, heard, I keep on interrupting you, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, earlier you, you mentioned something, and, and I, I'm, I'm glad you highlighted the fact that you, you talk about sexuality and intercourse as something totally different. They're two different ideas. And, yes. and, and, and this is where, uh, can you just give us the difference there as far as yes, tent- tantras? Yeah, it's very personal. I mean, I, I probably many people would, uh, would use the word in different ways. So the way I'm using the word sexuality for me means the, the, the life force that runs through everybody. Mm-hmm. It's my breath. It's my will to be alive. It's the light someone eyes. When we're really present in the body, that's when we're really allowing our sexuality to flower. And so in every encounter in my day, I can have a sensual experience when mm. I buy the food at the shop, when I jump on a bus, if I'm really aware of who's around me and, and, I'm, and I'm really aware of what are the feeling in my body in every moment. Mm. And that's for me sexuality. So it's very expensive in my, in my understanding of it, you know. Um, I cultivate my sexuality on my own often, you know. It's my meditation practice. 
And then when I'm full of presence inside of me, and then it's going to become overflowing out of me. And that's when I'm ready to share it with my partner. Then I'm sharing a being that is full and, and wants to meet the other. Often we meet with each other because we're feeling a big gaping hole inside of our being, a sense of loss, a pain, longing. And, and we think that someone else can feel that space inside of us. And I know that a lot of women looking for sex when in reality they just want intimacy. And they think that by meeting another and have sexual intercourse, they'll be filled, that emptiness will be filled. And unfortunately, I mean, some lucky one maybe can find fulfillment in that by all means. <laughs> but a lot of work that I do with a lot of women show me more and more that um, um, this casual intercourse is um, event just heighten the emptiness inside, mm-hmm. but heighten the sadness mm-hmm. inside. And, and I, I think because we need to cultivate more our personal sensuality first, in whichever practice we like in life, you know, I'm not, um, I think that we all, it's, it's life is a flavor, you know, we need to choose what works for us and, and give ourselves fully to the practice that we choose. And there are many, many practices available these days, you know. Mm. Now, in, 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 in Tantra, um, do, does one have to, you, do you both have to be practice, practitioners or can, can, can one engage in the act without the other one having experienced the, 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 the Tantric experience, I mean, practice? Oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, a lot of, a lot of deep lovers would practice Tantra without even knowing, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, Tantra for me is so rooted in the reality of living, you know, we can isolate it as a philosophy and create a big world around it, but when people meet in truth, that's a Tantric practice. When lover I can spend time looking in each other's eyes and not switching the light off and not closing the eyes and getting lost in their fantasy or mind journey. That's already the tantric practice, you know? Mm-hmm. So definitely a tantric experience practitioner can take uh, anybody with them into, into a deeper space. And also really what I want to say that as tantric practitioners, we, we, we meet in lovemaking knowing that in that Space, we looking to find ourselves. That's mm. that's the aim of the practice, mm. ultimately. Mm. So we're using, we're using the partner as a catalyst to deeper place inside of me. So even if my partner can give me the most amazing orgasm, is to be remember that that is mine. That is a space inside of me that I can have access at any time. Mm. So. The other are helping me in the journey and they are helping me to show me different aspects of myself. You know, different lover, different friend, different teacher are always pushing different aspects of our being to the light for me to see it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Valentina, for please me, stay on yes. the line for me. We're going to take a little break. We'll come back and pick up on that point, uh, okay. you know, uh, in, a, in a bit. But uh, Valentina's back after this. Yeah, thank you. Otherwise, on SAFM. Valentina Leo is my guest. She's a tantric practitioner. We're trying to understand it and trying to understand how it works. And uh, Valentina, you were saying that, you know, earlier you mentioned the fact that it's 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 when you spoke about the 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 sexuality, it's about all your senses working at the same time and being open to you know the present as opposed to just a physical act of intercourse. Now, now I, I feel like 
with what you've explained that it's it's a give and take situation you're giving and receiving and not just getting or just giving how important oh, is that well absolutely i mean it's a, it's a deep truth that in the deepest act of giving there is immense receiving mm-hmm. <clears throat> so every situation can also be called focus on one of the partners for example that can totally receive in a moment mm-hmm. um, i think in general of making we always have this idea that if i receive as much i need to give back mm-hmm. and so it's difficult to drop into the totality of receiving sometimes because we're already thinking, how am I going to give it back just now, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so that limits the totality of the receiving. And, um, and often also in giving, we avoid receiving. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's so true. We, we, we focus on our partners so we don't have to actually feel everything that happens inside of me. And a lot of the time, maybe there is discomfort and there is tightness. And, I don't want to engage with that because mm. lovemaking should be all pretty and beautiful. And you know, the truth is that sometimes it's not. And maybe in the time that he's not, it can be the most awakening opportunity for us to see side of ourselves that we're putting away, you know, that are uncomfortable. And the, the good news is that once we go in there and we feel them fully, as painful as it can be in the moment, then we move past through that. Mm. And then our ability to love will be expanded and enhanced. That's the good news, you know. What's what's the but but then there must be a, a huge trust uh, component in, included in that. The the love comes with a lot of trust because uh, you handing you handing yourself over completely as absolutely. vulnerable as you are to somebody else. Absolutely, absolutely. So the trust has to be very big. So my suggestion also with new lover to engage in trust exercise before you can drop in the depth of lovemaking, you know? So, like, practices like sitting opposite each other and just engaging in eyesight. We call this soul gazing. You just drop into looking into your partner's eyes and you stay like this for 20 minutes at least. And a lot of uncomfortable feelings will come up and for each of the partners to feel them. And after the practice, we talk about them. We talk about it. This, I find it is very important into the practice of lovemaking because a lot of things come up during that vulnerable space. And we keep them for ourselves and we hide them away. Some of them make us shameful or shy. Mm. And by not sharing them, we give power to the shame mm. and shy. Mm. So I find that it's very important to time into the practice of lovemaking, take half an hour after or the next time, you know, Maybe the next time with your lover, you meet just for chatting. Mm. And you sit and you talk, oh, this happened to me. And when you did that, I really felt shameful. And uh, that was painful. But I really like, you know, this ability to be completely vulnerable mm. into the practice of lovemaking. Then it becomes yoga. That is what I call Tantra yoga, you know? <laughs> Um, now, now, Valentina, we, we're going to run out of, we, in fact, I think we run out of time already, but I want you to just give us a, because your line is also not too clear. So I just want, uh, just the, the, a fool's guide, one, two, three, four, five points, if there are, of just reaching out. You mentioned the foregazing. Um, what's the next step after foregazing? You said talk about it, regardless. 
Um, yeah, talk talk about what's happening. Keep mm. your light on while you're making love. You know, be very present in the space you're in with the person you are in. Uh, try to get out of fantasies in your mind of uh, who you would want to be because then actually you're not fully present. And mm. um, for women, take your mind out of the shopping list and the, the many things you have to do later. And where did you put your bag and did you lock your car? You know, you really have to be willing to give yourself fooling. So clear your mind. And when they, when the thoughts arise, because they do arise, just open your eyes and deepen your breath. The other tip I want to give is fully exhale. We're focusing a lot in breathing in, and my, a lot of my work is focusing on to the exhale, empty yourself fully of breath and any idea you have about this moment, and make sound. Sound your exhale. Really let the sound of your being be heard mm. and be seen. Mm. Um, Listen, yeah. I, I really have enjoyed talking to you. How is one? Is there a website for you? How can people find you? And I, I know you're part of a workshop that's happening soon. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow yes. night it's happening at. Um, it's number two Avalon Road in Claremont, uh, and uh, in Cape Town. Yes, yes. And uh, is mainly the talk on the menstrual cycle for women and the connection to their sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually presenting a small performance. I use a lot of the performing arts to support my work, and I'm gonna share the vagina monologues from Eve Ensler. And um, I can be found on my website is um, www.mrslove.org. Mrs. Uh, Love. Mrs. Love. M-R-S-L-O-V-E. Dot org. Dot org. Uh-huh. You can find me on Facebook as Valentina Mrs. Love. Mm-hmm. And I offer groups. I offer one-on-one session. I offer talks. <laughs> you can oh, fantastic! if you want to know more. No, we and will I, definitely. We will definitely um, talk to you again. And good luck for tomorrow. And yeah, hopefully, hopefully everyone gets onto your website. And we hope we have a better line next time. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for being open to talk about sex and sexuality. I think it's the future of humanity. Well, it's, it's world, of our evolution. It's World Health, uh, the Sexual Health Day on Thursday. So we, we couldn't have done it better. Okay. Thank you. Thank Bless you so it. much. Take Bye. care now. That's, uh, yeah, Valentina Leo. And she's on www.mrslove.org. And if you are in Cape Town, tomorrow at 7 until 9 p.m., they're giving a talk. And it's at 2 Avalon Road in Claremont. Um, and you can find more information uh, from, from them, from the website.